Listener Production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. Hey, Adam, this is Matilda from Gungalan in Canberra. Uh, I've just finished high school, and I've got some ideas for starting a business, but I'm also feeling kind of burnt out after just finishing school. Um, would you say it's okay to go in a gap here or should I go straight into business? Thank you, Matilda, from Canberra. I absolutely love Canberra. Funny enough, one of our best ever selling domestic deals on Luxury Escapes was Canberra, uh, which surprises some people, but, but it's just an actually incredible destination. It's, it's so cosmopolitan. It's cafes everywhere. It's green. It's beautiful. I, I love going to Canberra. Uh, it's not just, not just Parliament House. There's a, there's a bit to it. Uh, so thanks, Matilda. Uh, and really good question, a really topical question. Uh, we are coming to year 12 exams. I remember when I was in year 12, which was now quite a few years ago, but it was such a big deal doing your exams in year 12. But, but certainly as you get older and as you sort of know less people doing school becomes sort of more and more distant. But, but it certainly is a, is a massive deal and a massive achievement to, to, to finish school and be in a position to, to potentially go to university or, or TAFE, uh, which, which, which can be good, can be bad, uh, depending on, on sort of who you are and, and what you want to do. So the real the question you asked is, should I, I've been a bit burned out, which is pretty common. Year 12 is a big year. Uh, and a lot of people in year 12 are working already. So I, know I certainly worked uh, when I was at school. Uh, and, and so the question is, should you take a gap year or should you go straight into uni? So there's, there's really pros and cons. I, I went straight through. So I, I finished year 12, was working multiple jobs during summer and went straight through and, and studied uh, a five-year degree uh, and then went straight to work. So I never had any time off. But remember, when you're at university, you're only working, uh, you're only doing sort of 13 hours to 15 hours a week, unless you're doing sort of a, a medicine or engineering type degree. So if you're doing a, a law or arts, a commerce degree, it's sort of 13 hours a week. So it's, it's actually not overly grueling. And you're probably only at uni for 30 weeks a year, if that. So uh, uni is probably a bit less grueling than year 12 in some ways, but a bit, bit harder in other ways. You, 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 almost everybody who goes to uni does work as well. So should you take a gap year? Should you not? Uh, I didn't. And I think that was great for me, uh, but really different people uh, have, a, have a different circumstance. A lot of people now do take gap years and gap years can be multiple things. So you can spend a year working, uh, you can spend a year traveling, uh, you can spend a year sort of doing a semi-concoction of both. So for example, doing almost volunteer work overseas. Uh, certainly the benefit of going straight through the uni is you enter the, your profession whether it be uh, following a commerce degree or a medicine degree or an engineering degree, you enter that a year earlier. So you start earning a year earlier. That's certainly a big benefit. The downside is you're a year less mature. So if you have spent a year doing non-academic stuff, uh, be it it work, you definitely do get a great sense of uh, maturity of worldliness. What I think is really important is not to waste that gap year. So if you've got to spend a year out of of, uh, university, make sure you don't sort of spend it working casual, casually 15 hours a week at, at McDonald's or, uh, or Hungry Jack's because ultimately you can do that while you're at uni. So you can very easily work 20 hours. I easily work 20 hours a week at uni. Most people do. 
and most people do that while playing sport, while going to uni. So what really does benefit, you can get a, a, what I call a real job or a job that you have real responsibility and, and can really learn from. That makes you a better person, more rounded, you'll save more money and it'll probably make you, put you in better stead to go to university if that's what you want to do. And if you don't want to do that, it puts you in better stead to, to stay in the workforce. And there's obviously lots of people who potentially took a gap year, worked at a job and loved it so much, continued that and didn't even go to university. So uh, university isn't for everyone. Uh, it's it's great for some people. It's not great for others. There is that expectation for a lot of people that you have to go to university, which I think is is unfair and wrong. I think in many cases, people are better off going straight to the workforce. Uh, I remember in, in school, uh, there was a guy who, who was probably not the most academic person in our, in our year level, but it was an incredible, lovely, incredibly lovely guy. And he went straight into a trade. And by the age of sort of 28, 29, he owned half a dozen properties. And it's probably the wealthiest person in, in our year. And we had people who uh, became incredibly successful investment bankers, who were lawyers, who were doctors, who started businesses. And, and this guy who was probably less academic, but but more hands-on, got a job and, and worked straight through and, and, and had, has an incredible life. So uh, sometimes the conventional wisdom isn't always the right thing to do. So by all means, consider a gap year. It's, it's a really good, um, good that you're keeping your options open. Uh, but that said, you don't have to take a gap year and, and you can certainly do lots of stuff while at university as well. You talk about the worldliness is, and, and then you also mentioned like getting a real job, is is traveling also something you'd recommend doing? Just getting around there and just going out there and doing something? Uh, so I don't, th- thanks, thanks, Ed, my uh, outstanding producer. So that's a really good question. I own a travel business, so I'm potentially biased, but I actually talk against my interest here in that I think if you, you can easily travel at uni. So uni finishes in November, comes back in March, I spent three ski seasons in Canada during my university uh, career. Uh, it's actually, you've got plenty of time to study. You can also take a semester off if you need to. I think if, if travel's what you want to do, you're actually better off going straight through uni and traveling in between uni or taking off a semester during uni. So don't lose that momentum, uh, which you've built up through study. And remember, you've got a four-month gap between school and uni as well, which you can travel. So you can still travel for three or four months uh, while going to uni. You don't have to take a year off. Uh, and obviously lose that ability to earn income and, and, and the rest. So again, very much horses for courses. That's something I wouldn't do because I think I, I think if you're going to take a gap year, certainly spend some of it traveling, but I think the real benefit of gap year is actually time in the workforce and getting real life experience. And that could be working overseas by the same token. So, and I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like I can imagine in the founders ecosystem and the entrepreneur ecosystem, there's a lot of pressure on not wanting to fall behind, whether that's like manifested internally or it's from like external sources. How do you, like if, if someone's feeling that pressure, but they're like, I want to do a gap year, how would you suggest managing that? I think that's a really good point. And as a founder, the, you really realize the most precious commodity you have is time and time is money. So for founders, if you've raised a bit of money from family and friends or from a, from a seed or a pre-seed, you've got a really limited time to most efficiently use that money till you can raise another another round of funding or to you can get to cash flow positive. So as a founder, you're really cognizant of, of timing and every minute, every every hour is is money. So because that could be time that you could be spending selling the business, selling your product or working on the product. So one thing you get as a founder is you're really cognizant of every second. So the notion of, of, of taking a year off to me as a founder is, is a bit foreign. So uh, it is probably not uh, in line with being a founder. That said, the great founders find a problem that they they experience in real life and solve it. So 
traveling, traveling or working allows you to find problems more readily rather than if you're cocooned in, in your sort of university and home life. So there are pros and cons to it. Uh, there's certainly plenty of founders who, who became founders un, in unconventional ways, but, but your point is really right. I look at a gap year as a, as a year of time. You're 18, you're 19. It's a really critical point in your life. It's not a year you want to waste. Uh, you could be learning on the job, but you see, you could be studying, could be making new friends. Don't spend that year and then get to sort of what would be a second year of uni and really haven't gone anywhere. That, that's that's probably the worst situation. By, to- by the same token, if you've got an incredible job uh, working at Listener and and working with in, with some of the great podcasters and really building your career, that could be what you want to do. That's a really great way to spend a year. Maybe you don't go to uni or maybe you go to uni with a job in, in your back pocket or with a part-time job. So there's lots of different – you never know what you're going to do. What, I guess the main – the main concern is don't spend that year um, working casually and and stuffing around and going going out with with friends and watching movies and watching Netflix and not really achieving anything. That that would be a, a real a really bad waste of a year and you end up on the back foot when everybody else is a year ahead of you at uni. Other people have started work and are earning sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. So that, that would be the worst situation, I think. Hey Adam, this is Sarah from Dandenong. Um, I'm thinking about starting a business, but I'm a bit wary of the risks. Would you mind just outlining some of the pros and cons and what could possibly go wrong? Thank you, Sarah from Dandenong. Uh, love to hear from female founders and potential female founders, which are becoming much more numerous. I think if you look, sort of look back a few years, it was it was really a male-dominated, a 30 uh, tech bro dominated scene. And now there's so many incredible female founders coming through Startmate and Antler and, and just generally in Australia and, and obviously the US. So it's, it's really fantastic. So great question, Sarah. Um, I guess in short, lots of things can go wrong, but that, that's, I guess, lot, part of the beast that lots of things can go right. So what can go, go wrong? Uh, again, let me take back to, as usual, I'll, I'll refer back to myself and think back when, when Jez and I started our first business, we were 24 I was a, a lawyer at uh, a really big law firm. Jez was a, at a bank. Really, the, the beauty of starting a business back then, and, and you sound like you're quite young as well. So the beauty of starting a business when you're 24 is the opportunity cost is quite low. Um, what I mean by that is when I was 24, I was earning $50,000 a year, So, and I was living at home. Uh, so if I start, if me and Jeremy started a business and it didn't go well, I'd just eventually get another job, and I've lost... 30 or 40 grand. So I call it the time taken. So that's the real opportunity cost is what you could be earning elsewhere. So that's, that's probably the worst thing that go wrong. The beauty of, of business is, and business is a limited liability company. So I think every business, you see the words PTY, LTD, so proprietary limited after every private company. What that means is your risk as an owner is limited to the capital you put in. So if, if a business goes wrong, unless you're fraudulent, uh, which is pretty rare, then you, you can't get sued by shareholders or, or creditors unless you've can trade insolvent or being fraudulent. So the beauty of a business is you can give it a try. If it goes wrong, really all you've lost is your time. So what can go wrong is, is relatively minimal at a younger age. Obviously, as you get older, so if, if you're 45 with, with three kids, school fees, and, and a really big mortgage, you've obviously got a much higher opportunity cost because you're probably also earning a much bigger salary wherever you are. So the the downside of, of leaving, leaving a job at the age of 45, if a successful job at 45 and starting a business is, is really significant. The downside of leaving a job at 22 or 23 is is negligible to nothing. So the best time to start a business is is when you're younger and it gets progressively harder as you get older. On the flip side though, the downside of starting a business when you're young is you've got less experience. You know less, you've got you built up less skills. Again, Eileen Lee, when she did a famous unicorn study about 10 years ago, found that sort of 30 to 32 is the best age to start a business. And generally co-founders, so two co-founders is the best um, 
combination to start a business. So there's, again, there's lots that can go right, lots can go wrong. Uh, in terms of what can go right with a business is what you need to really find is, are my unit economics positive? So the, the classic rule of unit economics in any business is, is the cost of acquiring a customer less than the lifetime value of that customer? And you want a bit of a gap, what we call a delta. So let's, let's, let's use um, my business luxury escapes as an example. Let's say it costs us $100 to acquire a customer. And by that, I mean, uh, by generally by digital marketing is the proxy we use. And we market all sorts of ways through radio, TV shows, podcasts, newspapers, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, obviously Google. So there's lots of different ways we market, but let's just say our cost of acquisition is $100. It's not, but let's just say for argument sake, $100. What, we want to, what you want to see in our business is that when somebody buys something from us, the margin we make is more than $100. Now, the corollary is most people, if you have a good business, the person comes back multiple times, so you've got a higher lifetime value, but it's also really, really hard to know what your lifetime value is, certainly in the first, really the first five years of your business. So the proxy a lot of people use is what's the profitability on first purchase? So can you acquire a customer for less than that customer pays you in margin? That's a really big one. If you can do that, and it's a big if because a lot of businesses can't, certainly over the last couple of years, lots of businesses had negative unit economics, which is why a lot aren't around today. But if you do have positive unit economics, you know that you, your business has a real head start in, in being able to grow. So once you've got positive unit economics, you can potentially raise money or even bootstrap it and scale the business. And that's through uh, investing in in people, in team, in tech, and in marketing. So the real key uh, when you're starting a business, and the beauty of a business is, and you asked about the risk, the beauty of a business is it's not all or nothing. So that what you can, most businesses involve, especially consumer businesses, you start small. You start selling to friends and family and people you know and friends of friends. And if you find this product market fit, so the unit economics are positive, you can start marketing more and more broadly. So uh, as opposed to uh, potentially 50 years ago where you had to build a factory and, and manufacture cars, with most businesses, especially now with things like uh, AWS and, and Salesforce and lots of online cloud-based products, you can start small, you can test the market, you can iterate, you can learn, and the risk is actually quite minimal. So in really in business, when you start, the main risk is what are you earning at the moment? What am I losing? And what's my opportunity cost? So how much will I be set back if the business doesn't work? But just one more thing to add is if you have started a business and, and that business doesn't work, and let's bear in mind, most businesses don't work. I've talked about on the show before only 1% of businesses are able to raise venture capital funding. So 99% can't. doesn't mean 99% of businesses or startups are bad. It just means it's really hard to raise money. And it's even harder to raise money in today's day and age since the, the bubble burst six months ago. So don't be ashamed or, or worried the business not working. What's really good though, and what I love to see, what I, people I love to hire is entrepreneurs who have given it a go and then want to come and work for a scale-up. And we consider ourselves a scale-up business. So if someone's had uh, a couple of years working at a business like listener, and then a couple of years in their own business. And that's in, an incredible resume. It shows that you're risk-taking, shows the entrepreneurial, shows you're willing to learn. It shows the, that um, you're able to try new things. And that's a fantastic skill set to have. So the, the stuff you'll learn in your startup and the benefit you'll take into your next role, whether it's working for a business or another startup, is really, really valuable. So my view always is give it a crack. Uh, don't worry about failing in a sense that even if you fail, there's lots of positives that come from it. But just make sure you're constantly looking at the business. Are my unit economics positive? Is this a business I continue to push through with? One really important thing to do is if you are going to fail, fail fast. So look at the business. If the business is going to work, really go hard. If the business isn't working, don't keep flogging a dead horse for a year or two years or three years. Move back to where you used to work, get a new job or start a new business. So what the worst thing that can happen is, is failing slowly. The best thing that can happen is succeeding and the second best is failing fast.
So Adam, you mentioned when you're doing that first seed raise that a lot of the time you'll go to family and friends and raise the money that way. How do you manage that kind of, you know, the conversation around you've raised this money, the businesses has failed and everyone's lost their money? Uh, fortunately, I've never had that exact situation happen. Mm. Uh, and I'm actually very wary of raising our family and friends. So we, we, Jeremy and I had our own savings when we started Lux. Uh, we did, I did actually briefly borrow some money from dad. I think it was about $50,000, which I paid him back pretty quickly. It was to overcome a, a timing issue with the business, but that wasn't so much a family and friend. It was more of a, it's more of a loan. Um, it's yeah. I think anybody who invests in a startup, whether it's family and friends or, or professional investors needs to be made aware and should be aware that startups are incredibly risky. So you can make a thousand times, 10,000 times your money in a startup. So you can turn uh, Jeff Bezos, as I think most people don't realize is Jeff Bezos's family invested in Amazon and made tens of billions of dollars investing in Jeff. Uh, so they, they had a huge upside. So you can make billions of dollars investing in family and friends rounds, early rounds, but also it's very easy to lose money. So the higher the risk, and it's classic, uh, <laughs> classic phrase in finance, the higher risk, the higher return. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, generally, I, th- I find startup investing to be probably the best kind of investing and the risk return ratio, the returns are huge and the risks are certainly big, but probably not that much bigger than potentially public company investing. So in many senses, I love investing in call it a series A, series B, where a business has got product market fit and you just need to scale it. Doesn't mean they're going to work. I've invested in businesses at series A that have failed. Absolutely. But I go in that, go in there knowing there is a significant chance I might lose all my money, but there's also a good chance I can make 20, 20 or 30 X. So that, that's the risk that any investor in a startup needs to face. And certainly if you are raising family and friends, this is why it's a, it's a really good question is you need to make your family and friends aware that it is highly risky, that you'll do your best. And ultimately you're risking more than anyone else as, as the founder. Uh, but the family and friends have huge upside, but also not an unlikely chance of losing all that money. So everybody just needs to be made aware of that going in. You don't want to disappoint people, but most family and friends should understand. And if they do understand that, if the money is lost, but they should not hate you for it. One, actually one really important though thing to note, and this is for any founder or even sort of later stage founder, is it's really important to keep communication lines open with your investors. It's something that I was certainly guilty of in the early days. And I think I have learned from, and it's really important to keep your shareholders informed. I now do a, uh, a quarterly update. Uh, I'd obviously do a board monthly, but I do a quarterly or half yearly update for shareholders. Uh, and I try and keep them as informed as possible on what is happening in the business. Uh, and that's not just the good thing. That's more important than the bad things. What shareholders hate is being shocked. And I've had businesses where you haven't heard from the CEOs. So I've invested in the business and you don't hear from him in 18 months and suddenly the business is forming terribly. Or you've asked them a question, they tell you it's forming terribly. If you get told it's not so bad, if you have to ask the question or the business suddenly goes under, that's that's a much worse result. So communication is really, really important. And if you're a founder, I, I always stress, I've, and I've, I've, I've invested in some businesses that got some incredible founders. Uh, Max Moffersley is a classic one. He sends an update every single, it's just a five minute uh, Loom video every single month talking about the directory of the business, talking about what's going well, what's going badly, what he thinks will happen next month. And I love it as an investor. I, I love Max as a, as a founder and a CEO. And the fact that he's able to keep everybody so informed, if something does go wrong, you, should, you don't blame him for it. Yeah, and you very much empathize with him because you've been on the journey. So one really big lesson for, for all founders, uh, and I know there are a lot of founders who listen to the, to the show, uh, keep your shareholders informed. If you can, if you can give a monthly update, even if it's a an email or literally a five minute video, that's great. But it, sort of worst case quarterly, I think would be a, is a really nice cadence. Obviously, as you get hundreds of thousands of shareholders, it becomes impossible. But when you've got sort of two, five, 10, 20 shareholders, 
absolutely the more correspondence you can have, the, the better. And just keep take shareholders on the journey because they are part of the business and you may need them down the track. And it's really important for, for not only future rounds, but also if things go wrong, uh, they're much more likely to be understanding. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Adam Schwab.